A pay rise for the armed forces, but are more cuts on the way to fund it? The nation has been trying to get defence on the cheap, and this is just another example of it. Will other bases follow RF Scampton and face closure? Plus, Trump's angry tweets to Iran, and is it time for a proper study of suicide rates among the UK's military veterans? Good news and bad news this week for the armed forces. The pay cap that's held down wages and depressed morale is finally being lifted. But there's been more evidence, too, of the cuts facing the military. Ministers confirmed a 2% increase with a one-off bonus of just under 1% later this year. But at the same time, they also announced plans to close RF Scampton in Lincolnshire to save £140 million. It's led one former Chief of the Air Staff to warn ministers against trying to get defence on the cheap. Paul Osborne has more. Squadron leader Martin Pert, red one, bringing the red arrows up the mall. Always a huge favourite with the crowds here. Just two weeks ago, the red arrows took pride of place at celebrations for the RAF centenary. The red, white and blue of the red arrows blasting their way over Buckingham Palace. But then came the news that many had feared. Hello, good evening and welcome to Look North. Coming live tonight from RAF Scampton in Lincolnshire as the MOD announces that the base is to close. A very sad day for the community. There's uh, so many links stretching back for so many years between uh, Scampton and the, and the RAF. It would be a sad, sad day to see those links broken and disappear. Be concerned that the red arrows are going to disappear from Lincolnshire because they're synonymous with the area. To do this is just not right. It's just not right at all. On the 100th anniversary of the RAF, it's a big shame that you can bring out news like this after 100 years of the RAF. The home of the Dambusters, now the base for the Red Arrows, Scampton will close by 2022. I've been fighting and we've been fighting for years to try and keep it open. Local MP Sir Edward Lee. It's always been a bit marginal and the fact is the RAF is much smaller than it was 40 years ago, much, much smaller. This is a technical decision taken by senior RAF officers. I'm afraid there's very little we can do about it. We're all very disappointed. This is an historic base. It was the home of the Dam Busters and the Vulcans. It's been a tremendous base for the Red Arrows. I'm extremely sorry to see it go. According to the MOD, it's closing as part of a wider move to more modern and efficient military bases. Retired Air Vice Marshal Jerry Conley. At the end of the day, money has to be clearly spent in the most reasonable and sensible way that can be done. And sometimes that means the closure of things like bases like Scampton and indeed Linton News, where I, funnily enough, train as a pilot. So that's that is the way of the future, but we still have a Royal Air Force, we still have the Red Arrows, and we still have a defence posture as well. But former Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Michael Graydon, sees little cause for optimism. Show me where actually we're getting more money for defence other than on the margins. You know, we, we, we had a huge cut to the armed forces in my time, massive. Uh, it's been going on for years and years and years, and then in 2010, another major cut. Even all the good plans, which are not actually budgeted for, that were exposed in 2015 will not bring us back to where we were in 2010. And with more cuts likely to follow, he doesn't know where future savings will come from. It's just another example of having to make savings, which the armed forces have had to do really 
since my time, 1990, 1991, there's been savings year on year on year. The nation has been trying to get defence on the cheap, and this is just another example of it. The search is on for a new home for the Red Arrows, but with some of its supporters questioning whether it could soon be seen as a too expensive luxury. Paul Osborne with that report. Well, I'm joined by Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University and by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, closing Scampton then will save £140 million. We heard the emotion from local people in that report. Is this the thin end of the wedge? Well, no, it's bravo that there was, there was emotion because it means they clear. It's like a, a, it's a care. That's why when they closed, for example, Biggin Hill, it had a great sort of Second World War status in, in many people's minds. But, you know, it's nonsense, you get from marshals like I mean frankly somebody I admire very much Michael Graydon he says the nation is is, is trying to get defence on the cheap the nation actually couldn't care anything about defence on the cheap uh, defence never comes up as an election issue etc it doesn't know how to do it but you can't argue against the fact that money has to be put into defense, to defence to secure nobody the country doing that. nobody is doing that you see the idea it will it will close so that they can save 140 millions. No, it will close and they will then save 140 millions on, on that. What we haven't got is this is this ability of the Defence Ministry to manage its budget. Quite often the Defence Ministry actually doesn't spend all its budget. And that's the way of defence spending because it's over sometimes five, six, seven, eight-year project on, on, on one thing which then changes and therefore the money isn't, doesn't go out, etc. is also the procurement uh, system is appalling. Mm. I mean, no bank, no, 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 no fund manager will ever sort of tolerate it. And I think we ought to put this really, really in some sort of uh, perspective. Um, do you have, uh, especially at the moment, the RF is, 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 is thought so, you know, so well because of the 100 years do you still have a modernized defense review which we'll be able to match with two things one is the money that's going to be available over the next 20 years which i haven't uh because the because the cunning doesn't actually stretch that far and the second part which is particularly important um and that is you know what you're expected to do and in defence in terms of equipment and policy so you actually have to have a government says look this is our policy in homeland security and foreign policy this is the, the, the military we, we expect to uh, to do it and, and can you tell us if you can do it we do not do that there is a sign just a sign that the Prime Minister, egged on by her as security advisor and the Chancellor of the Exchequer who is former defence minister there is a sign that they're actually saying Please tell us what you think you need to follow our defence, our, our foreign policy. And the Ministry of Defence is saying, we do not know what your foreign policy is. Professor Paul Rogers, uh, we had confirmation this week of a pay rise, though below the 2.9% pay review body recommendation. But we also know the MOD is not getting any extra money to pay for it. Even more pressure on the budget. Yes, and that means there had to be more savings. But I think there's an added problem here, which actually puts the MOD in quite a lot of difficulty, including the Secretary of State, in negotiations with the uh, with the Treasury. And the point is the Treasury can always turn around and say, you're not very competent in developing new projects. I'm not talking about the longer term ones. I mean, the problem with the Type 45 or indeed the whole problem of maritime reconnaissance. 
But, you know, it's only, what, two or three weeks ago that the Infrastructure Projects Authority, which is independent, uh, actually delivered its annual report, and it's now put five different major defence projects on red flag. Uh, it had one before, I think that was the Naval Nuclear Reactor Corps. It added the Astute class, the Marshall Military Air Traffic Control, Protector Armed Drones and Warrior Armoured Vehicle Upgrade, 15 or £16 billion pounds of planned expenditure. And it's saying that in all five cases, they are, quotes, currently unachievable and requiring assessment. And the problem is that that actually puts the Ministry of Defence on the back foot in the internal debating within government about saving money. I agree very much with Christopher. It is not a major issue except occasionally at, at um, election campaigns. But within government, the ministry is actually in a weak position, not necessarily at all to do with the uh, w with the officers, but uh, I mean, the ministry as a ministry has frankly been very inefficient in recent years. Paul, this started around about 30-odd years ago when, when Michael Heseltine, now Lord Heseltine, became Defence Secretary. When he went into office, he said, right, now what do I own? And they said, what do you mean by that? And he said, tell me what I own as the Defence Secretary. And they put up 150 uh, papers round his walls in his office and said, this is the real estate that you own. And he said, how come nobody knows the whole, the whole thing about that? I'll give you the perfect illustration of concern in Scampton. They close Scampton, a few people get outside and it's sad. If they had said, we will scrap the Red Arrows, you would have got the real imagination. Yes, indeed, absolutely. Sitrep with Kate Still to come, we look at how we came to commemorate our war dead at the Cenotaph. Plus, is the UK doing enough to keep track of military veterans who could be at risk of suicide? Colonel Philip Ingram, former intelligence officer in Iraq, he finds it frightening to see serving soldiers out on the streets with buckets collecting money to look after them for charities whenever they leave the forces. Once again, Donald Trump's tweets have got the rest of the world feeling nervous. Earlier this week, the US president had a warning for Iran's leaders written entirely in capital letters. Never, ever threaten the United States or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. Well, let's turn again to Paul Rob Rogers. This was after Hassan Rouhani warned Trump war with Iran would be the mother of all wars. What on earth is Trump up to? It's very difficult to say because the problem with all of this, and as you say, this is why it is causing real consternation among the United States allies, is on this occasion, uh, Trump has withdrawn the United States from this key agreement, which is designed certainly to limit Iran's nuclear ambitions for something like 10 years. So he's actually withdrawn. Uh, the Iranians are very annoyed about this. And in fact, privately, I think some of the, the European countries are annoyed as well, because they actually see any increase in sanctions which the US is planning to implement, I think it's in October and November, as really very damaging to their economy, which is already weak. So the Iranians are making these comments, and I think this is coming largely from the Iranian uh, what, Revolutionary Guard. Um, the net result of this is that we're actually getting a sudden build-up of tension in the Gulf, which is unexpected. Now, in the normal way, uh, the U Europeans would be quite sympathetic to the United States, but not this time because they actually back what Obama did, and they think this is the best way to constrain Iranian nuclear developments. And this, I would think, is why behind the scenes there's a lot of worry in France and Berlin, and indeed in London, for that matter. You know, a few, a few weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump took off on this uh, Iranian thing. And he, any opportunity to, every time he was prompted, he'd have something to say. And what he was actually doing 
was denouncing President Obama's plan yes, yeah. for Iran. Now, that was <clears throat> then, that's all it was. He then got the backup on some of the technical side of, of weapons development and also the use of, for example, an increase in, 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 in the number of cascades, which was the technical side of it, the evidence that he wanted to actually say Iran wasn't playing the game. He then had a, a, a long, long session or in three sessions, in fact, uh, one, two telephones, with, with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, Bibi Netanyahu in, in Israel. Israel fears Iran more than anything and makes accusations about the Iran more than anybody and relies on uh, uh, President Trump as their major mm. ally still. Now, there you got the sight of it, but the point is that Britain and the United, uh, United Kingdom and France, for example. So we really ought to stick with the deal we've got because to put another deal together, you'd be hanging around in, in negotiating rooms for the next sort of five or six years and you may never get to it. And in that five or six years, the thing moves on for the different pressures, political pressures in Iran itself with President uh, Rouhani. Inter incidentally, the mother of all wars, uh, said Iran. I remember Saddam saying exactly the same thing. Mm. Well, Iran, of course, is accused of using the civil war in Syria as a proxy conflict. This week, Israel had to evacuate hundreds of members of the White Helmets volunteer group helping those trapped by the violence because they were themselves trapped by a Syrian government offensive in the south of the country. Uh, Paul, what do you make of that development? Well, I think it is very significant. Uh, the White Helmets appear to have actually been put in this area position primarily by a combination of the Syrian government and the Russian Air Force. This was this particular one didn't seem to involve much in the way of the Iranian militias, which absolutely have been very supportive of the Assad regime. I think it was uh, the thing about this is the White Helmets are actually very heavily backed and funded by a number of Western countries, particularly the British Foreign Office. And I think the British and the French and others felt that they owed this to them. Now, the only people who were in a position to actually get them out would have been the Israelis who did it. But note that there was an agreement reached almost immediately that once they were in Israel, they will not stay in Israel, they would go to Jordan. But Jordan would only take these people, um, many hundreds of them, if other countries were then prepared to take them on. Because, like the UK. Like the UK and like and Germany as well, and Canada too, because they feel that they have taken so many hundreds of thousands of refugees from Syria that they shouldn't be sort of put on to take any more. And that, I think, is what is going to happen. So some will certainly be coming to Britain. Gentlemen, stay with us. There are renewed concerns over the number of military veterans taking their own lives. A new investigation has established between 14 and 16 have done so in the last few months. Those figures suggest that, on average, a veteran takes their own life every 11 days. Well, earlier I spoke to Phil Bradfield, part of the Johnston Press Investigations team, which has been looking into the issue. The first thing I'll just say, Kate, is that there is a strong consensus that uh, the majority of veterans adapt to civilian life very well. However, there is rising concern about suicide level amongst veterans. Uh, their representatives and individual veterans, politicians, psychologists are all very concerned and there is no data to say what the current situation is. No official data, but you've done some digging. What have you found in your investigations? The last study in 2009 found 
out of 233,000 uh, veterans that there were 224 suicides and that's really the last glimpse we have. So the truth is we're really in the dark. We wrote to every coroner in the UK and they're not keeping any records so we just don't know. All we know is that there's rising concern. But why is there rising concern if we don't know? It's a difficult question to answer but, but I'll just go to several uh, psychiatrists from Combat Stress which is the government appointed mental health charity for veterans saying the rates in Australia, the US and Canada over the past 10 years have shown concerning rises that, are, that parallel each other. They're saying, you know, there's a red light here for the UK. There's a gap on the data. We need fresh research. We need to know what the situation is. There, there also is a consensus that a lot more of these cases are being reported in the media. There's 10 people in our team. We've spoken to veterans groups across the UK and we've effectively gathered anecdotal information. It's, it's really quite crude. And we've also gone through press clippings and we've spoken to our own sources. We ha we're satisfied that we've confirmed there were between 14 to 16 veteran suicides since the 18th of April this year. The big story here is that there's a, there's a complete blackout on what the, the true situation is in terms of statistics. You mention a blackout. Why do you think there is a blackout? There are different opinions on it. I mean, we, we have uh, a chap called uh, Simon Marion. Uh, he's a former Royal Marine who heads up the Veterans United Against uh, Suicide UK. And he says, I quote him, not recording these figures makes it very easy for the MOD to turn a blind eye. If it is possible to record these figures in America or Australia, why not in the UK? Another chap, Colonel Philip Ingram, former intelligence officer in Iraq, he finds it frightening to see serving soldiers out on the streets with buckets collecting money to look after them for charities whenever they leave the forces. And he, he says there's, a, there, there's a, a duty of care on the MOD to look after veterans properly. Have you actually talked to the MOD about... Uh, the data? Well, uh, yes, we have, of course, spoken to the MOD. They've, they've given us a lot of information, but they're saying that the, the rate of suicide is significantly lower in the armed forces than in the general population and that it takes the issue very seriously. They're saying the reasons people take their lives can vary and are not necessarily linked to their service in the military. And they are also working on a number of initiatives, a strategic over review of the situation to try and improve the situation for veterans. Phil Bradfield speaking to me earlier. Well, the MOD says it's still working out how to gather data on veteran suicide. It's a worry, Christopher, isn't it, that unlike the US, we're not re already doing that. And hard to accept that there's no higher rate of suicide for British veterans when other studies by other countries suggest the opposite. Well, there is. Uh, you've got to say the Americans have a totally different attitude towards their veterans. They have a big veterans organisation. It's a bigger country and it has a bigger organisation. And it's a natural thing that the DOD, for example, puts a lot it's of It's not money. just America, is it? Uh, Australia as no, well. No, Australia as well. In fact, yeah, the Aust the Australians have a have a more a more perceptive attitude. They question who are veterans. Veterans from what? How long do you have to be a veteran? Is it somebody, for example, in our terms, who say, oh, you know, they fought in Iraq, therefore they're a veteran with a problem, which we can therefore trace back to I Iraq? Because a lot of the investigations looking for a cause of the stress rather than what you do about it now that, that now that you've got it. And that becomes particularly important when you think that a lot of the veterans would have been stressful types anyway. And one of the reasons which nobody talks about is the fact that that's why they joined the services. 
they weren't sort of straightforward people that didn't have any problems and not so, everybody. There, there is some anecdotal evidence that people who join the forces young and don't stay in very long are at more risk. And they're looking for something. And it, and it can be anything. And if you look at their school records, which is now is what happens, uh, I'm going through something at the moment, with something I sit on, where you look at school records and you try to make judgments. You cannot do that. You have to be very careful because you get legal sort of bits of paper sort of flying left and centre. But the most other important thing is that people who are coming out of the services uh, start doing this or start saying this. There's nobody to talk to because nobody understands the language and nobody understands the feelings that I have. In other words, they're out of that comfort zone that they had when they were in the services. Christopher, stay with us. But for now, Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thank you for your time today. Now, the Commons Defence Committee has been investigating mental health care for current and former military personnel. This week, it warned the number seeking help has almost doubled in the past decade, but that many face a long wait for treatment. Well, one idea designed to ease the pressure is the Veterans Mental Health Transition, Intervention and Liaison Service launched by NHS England just over a year ago. James Hurst has been to see it at work. At London St Pancras Hospital, there is a team set up specifically to understand the experiences and needs of people who serve their country, the different routes that their day-to-day mental health issues may have. And when you did get to the next station, what perhaps more importantly, it's about making access to help easier—a single point of contact. The lead psychologist here, Dr. C. Ferrier, says they want to stop people falling between the gaps in different health and care services. Say you've got an individual with alcohol issues and trauma symptoms, for them to deal with the alcohol issues, they need understanding of the trauma symptoms. So we might do the work with the, with the trauma and also link them into alcohol services. One of the things that, that the military gave me is, is the marks, that military mask. You know, I can be lofty. Mark Taylor is one of around 2,900 patients seen across England by the service in just over a year. He served for 25 years in the army, but 17 years in after a tour of Iraq, he suffered severe PTSD and depression. He tried to kill himself twice. But there was no panic, there was no, you know, there was no care for anybody else. It was, I can't be that soldier anymore, and this, this, this is it, I might as well not be here. How are you doing now? I'm well on the way to recovery. I would never ever say that I'm fully recovered because there are also life issues and everything else like that. But now I've got the, the understanding that there is support and help that can sit quite closely behind me if I need to. The Teal Service has that understanding of where you have come from. You know, so there's specific um, dealing with anxiety as a civilian is completely different with dealing as a, member of the ex-forces. The new veteran service is clearly helping Mark, but MPs warn of a postcode lottery for mental health care and waits that can be too long. Labour MP Ruth Smith sits on the Commons Defence Committee. Whatever is there, knowing that you can access it and how to access it, that's a really big challenge. And I just don't think, with the, even with the Veterans Gateway, it's just not working properly yet. But Dr Jonathan Leach, a former military doctor who's one of the designers of this new service, says it is addressing those concerns. What we put, and the, the providers came and said they would do, is yes, they will have main locations, but a lot of them are providing what we would describe as pop-up clinics. So, for example, in my local patch, quite frequently they might use offices in Royal British Legion with a therapist or nurse. 
but actually we're working very hard, firstly in terms of people being seen in a quick way, but secondly being making, making sure that people are being seen in a place which is easier for them to get to as well. Key to this service is the ability to refer yourself. If you live in England and have served just one day in the forces, there is a balancing act here. Politicians and mental health professionals keen to stress many face the challenges of serving and then transition to civilian life with no mental health problems. But for those who do suffer, they want to end stigma and ensure anyone who needs any help can get it. And if you need help or support, the charity Combat Stress runs two helplines. Their website is combatstress.org.uk. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. The traditional sounds of remembrance heard across Britain every November. Well, this year, of course, marks 100 years since the end of the First World War. And two former military chiefs have this week called for shops to close on the 11th of November. General Lord Dannett and Admiral Lord West say it would be a special act of remembrance. That call comes ahead of the opening this weekend of a major new exhibition which looks at the way Britain commemorates war and the war in particular. It's called Lest We Forget and is being staged at the Imperial War Museum North in Salford. I'm joined now by Alex Wharton, curator for the First World War for the Imperial War Museum. Hello, Alex. Britain's commemoration of the war dead is based around Remembrance Sunday, the Cenotaph and the Poppy, but how did it all happen? Um, Hi, Kate. Uh, Yeah, so Britain's um, remembrance uh, rituals that came out of the First World War were quite unique to that conflict. And they really responded to um, the fact that the conflict was um, such a shocking, huge um, loss of human life and um, certain decisions that were made at the time about how we treat the war dead. One of those very important decisions was that bodies, um, British soldiers who died um, on the front in France and other theatres of war, they would not be able to be repatriated home. So um, people could not bury their own sons, husbands, um, loved ones in graves in their local parishes and uh, the nation had to find ways of remembering the war dead um, in in other kinds of tributes in um, more abstract services, rituals and modes of remembrance. And how much have those symbols of remembrance effectively taught us how to pay tribute to the war dead? Well, um, the symbols and, and modes and, and rituals of remembrance that were sort of came out of the First World War era, they've been, they've continued and really endured for the next 100 years. They've been um, used for the way that we commemorate the war dead of the Second World War and subsequent conflicts as well. Um, so this is one thing that we look at in the exhibition. We um, consider how those uh, ways of remembering were unique to that conflict, but then really became something that not only Britain but um, countries around the world took up as ways to remember the war dead. Things like the two-minute silence, um, these were concepts that were um, born during the time of the First World War. Mm. 
your exhibition also examines more personal ways of remembering down to memorials on mantelpieces, doesn't it? That's right. We look at um, a spectrum of war remembrance like you say, from the very personal, the, the kind of really unique um, tributes and um, creations that families would individually make for their loved ones to the ways communities remember, um, community plaques, churches, workplaces, all kinds of communities like that, up to the big national modes of remembrance. And the exhibition also, um, although it focuses on First World War remembrance, it looks at how we today as a society remember the First World War and um, the sort of cultural modes of understanding the First World War and First World War remembrance that um, are more modern, um, especially things such as books, films, and, theatre. And how much do you think the way that we remember and pay tribute to people who served in conflicts is changing and has changed since the First World War? If you think about the impromptu events at Wooden Bassett, for example, do, do you think that the government is often playing catch-up with public feeling? Well, it's interesting because um, I think what the ex exhibition demonstrates is that certainly the sort of modes of war remembrance that um, came about during the time of the First World War, they have endured and there are these institutionalised modes of war remembrance. But as you say, uh, remembrance also evolves and there are always new ways mm. um, that war remembrance takes place. You even see, um, for example, instead of just traditional memorials um, set in stone in, in right. communities, you see web web memorials, for example. All right, Alex Walton, thank you very much for your time today. today. And that uh, exhibition at the Imperial War Museum in Salford is uh, until February next year. Christopher, we talked today about pay rises, budget cuts, problems with providing mental health support. Is there an argument the money spent on memorials might perhaps be better used dealing with some of the other problems? No, the, the money spent on memorials is a piddling around, but it is a choice for the government to provide the funds. I'll tell you, Go to churches, just a few people in. Go to the supermarkets, not many people stop at 11 o'clock. It is a myth that the nation stands in silence. They'll watch the cenotaph service, but okay. it, is, it is just a myth. Time for us to be silent now. And thanks to all our guests, Christopher and Paul Rogers. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you are. Thanks for listening. I'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.